I'm Julia Gray, a Fellow of St John's College, and this is the text of my inaugural lecture as Laudian Professor of Arabic. When I read Arabic as an undergraduate, I was conscious of being received into a great tradition of Oriental studies, whose rules were unwritten but understood by everyone. The aims and methods of philology prevailed and were thought to be self-evident. You read difficult texts and used them as a source of data for the purpose of establishing facts. Literature and culture were approached through experience, taste and insight. Theory was unknown. It was an orderly and confident world with great achievements to its credit. Since then, theory has at least got a foot in the door. Data seem more ambiguous, facts harder to be sure of. And in the wake of public challenges to our profession's introspective habits, such as Edward Said's Orientalism, and Samuel P. Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, people who, like me, study the Middle East as outsiders have spent a lot of intellectual and emotional effort trying to make sense of our involvement with a culture not our own. But we keep our doubts and searchings to ourselves, and on the surface, there's not much change in what we do and how we do it. Let me give a couple of examples. In my speciality, which is medieval and early modern Arabic literature, confusingly called classical Arabic literature in the trade. Trends in methodology have swung this way and that since I was a student, but in terms of assumptions about what's worth investigating and why, Arabic literary scholarship has worked its way back to its earlier starting points, so that once again, though in a less purely intuitive way, we're trying to identify human values and creative thought. We're engaging with our authors rather than classifying them and their writings, as we did during an intervening period of formalism and detachment. Another example of seeming changelessness is the question of what constitutes the literary canon. The same authors have been the focus of study for half a century or more. It's true that before email, scholarly exchanges in our tiny community could be glacially slow. Repartees in a debate might be fired off in learned journals or monographs, at intervals of decades, which doesn't favour radical shifts of perspective. But the real reason why the same authors are still in the lead roles is that we're discovering that we really don't know them. The pigeonholes that we used to put them into simply don't fit. We need to start reading them again from the ground up to understand their thought world and what they're talking about and why it matters to them. Does this sound like a picture of staying in the same place or going round in circles? On the contrary, I'm going to argue, it shows how we're going forward. I think that we're living in one of the most exciting times there have ever been for the study of Arabic literature. And in this lecture, I want to explain why. And the burden of my argument will be the importance of recurrence, repetition and cyclicality as inherent to progress in this field of study, inherent to classical Arabic literary culture itself, and indeed to literature and to culture meaning and human purpose everywhere. Way back towards the very beginnings of Arabic literature, in the 6th century AD, the pre-Islamic poet Amtara famously opened his masterpiece ode by asking if there could be anything left to say that poets hadn't already said over and over. Have the poets left anything that can still be patched onto? as if poetry were an exercise in threadbare repetition. 
but he immediately answered this question with a gesture of personal recognition and piercing remembrance. Remembrance of his lost love, recognition of the places where their tribes camped and they met. He knew, all his listeners knew, that his answer, vivid as it was, only proved the point. Mourning over the ruins of the beloved's encampment was a poetic convention. But in some unexplained way, the convention of mourning energises the poet. After a while, instead of remembering the past, Anthara becomes absorbed in reliving it. And at the end of the poem, reliving his revenge on his enemies, he exults. Then my soul was healed and all my anguish was dispersed by the cry of the warriors. Well done, Anthara, charge again. The two sons of Dum Dum injured me, but I have left their father to be mangled by the lions and by the eagles. Modern scholars, like the medieval commentators before them, could easily imagine the life of an ancient Bedouin poet to have been an unending cycle of desert skirmishes, punctuated by idyllic pastoral interludes. In other words, to be identical with what the poems themselves describe and with their scheme of composition. Part of the enchantment of these poems is the vision they offer to readers whose own experience and outlook are fundamentally different, and this applies just as much to medieval readers as to us today, of a life utterly alien, described through places, animals and actions that seem utterly concrete and which process through poem after poem until we feel we know both the physical landscape of this strange world and the emotional landscape that echoes it. And yet, if these poems seem concrete, they're also highly symbolic, and the things in them that seem so real are out of reach, impalpable, and the emotions enigmatic, not least because the most ancient poems have been garbled and mutilated, until sometimes only ruins remain, and much of their meaning is beyond retrieval. And all this together is why they fascinate and can be revisited and reinvested with emotional charge and can supply the template for almost any order of symbolic meaning to poem after poem and to the slightest poetic allusion and echo century after century. And as nothing beguiles the heart and fancy like ruins, so for centuries up to this day, the early Arabian poets have been read romantically. By the seven and eight hundreds AD, Arabia had become peripheral to the Islamic Caliphate, which was a cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic empire sprawled over a vast geographical area. And the Bedouin way of life had become marginal. For most literate people, reality was urban, and classical Arabic was a language that had to be learnt in the schoolroom. It was the language of the political and administrative elite, the tool of empire. It represented the most valuable cultural capital there was, and was used for purposes of social positioning and advancement by servants of empire, who mostly were not Arabs. So while classical Arabic was still regarded as being the natural speech of the Bedouin, and Arabic poetry still had its founding charter in an ancient Arabian lifestyle and ethos, in reality Arabic language and literature no longer expressed the identity of a people and its homeland. They served new ways of life and new sorts of social and human needs. Let's look at some of the needs of medieval urban life and the kinds of literature they gave rise to. And while we do, I'll show you a PowerPoint 
a view of one of the new cities of the Caliphate of Africa Raqqa on the upper Euphrates, which at the end of the 8th century AD was Harun al-Rashid's capital city. This is an aerial photo from a recent Nottingham University archaeological field report. In a new world order, which had come about through ancient empires being wiped off the map, invasions, population displacements and a new creed whose most widely felt effect was social restructuring, had an impact which laid down new vectors of unease and doubt. On the part of the conquered peoples, especially those who transferred their loyalties and became high-ranking servants of the Caliphate, there was a need for proof that there are constants in human experience that transcend change and a need to salvage something of their own identity from the wreck of the empires that had perished. Wisdom literature is typically the literature of uneasy times and the earliest Arabic prose writings, which we owe to non-Arabs, translate the wisdoms of the past, of all the then known cultures which had converged on the Middle East, into the new imperial language as something to hold fast to during a bumpy ride. What is wisdom? Why translate it? Wisdom warns of life's dangers, but doesn't promise control or survival. What it does offer is understanding, and through understanding and acceptance of the human condition, dignity. Wisdom, therefore, is also virtue. And so wisdom in its Arabic translations is often put into the mouths of saints and sufferers, whether pagan ancients of unfathomed antiquity or Muslims, and of historical or contemporary heroes. The PowerPoint here shows a recent 2013 edition and translation of a collection of wise sayings attributed to the fourth caliph Ali, Imam of the Shiites, assassinated in 661, and another collection attributed to the great man of letters Jahith, who died in about 868. And over the centuries, as the caliphate in its turn fell apart, and new polities were formed, this ecumenical legacy of virtuous wisdom was urged on princes by their councillors as a political programme and a code of decorum that would provide proof of the time-tested rightness of the monarchical principle and of the legitimacy of their rule. In one aspect, then, the chain of wisdom was impersonal because wisdom literature assumes that human experience stays the same across the ages, whoever acts as its mouthpiece. But in another aspect, it was very personal indeed, on the one hand because it was enacted in personal conduct, and on the other because it wasn't absorbed from an anonymous folk memory, but was deliberately sought out in written texts, in books studied by members of learned families who had preserved a knowledge of ancient languages, had access to ancient manuscripts, and through their standing at court could persuade members of the ruling elites to pay to have ancient knowledge translated into Arabic, a patronage which again often ran in families. The search for the recovery of the wisdom of the past was the goal of what's now known as the Great Translation Movement of the 8th to 10th centuries. And it went hand in hand with the endeavour to develop and formalise wisdom through philosophy, the sciences and ultimately mysticism. In other words, it launched a tradition that over the following centuries increasingly assumed and promoted the connectedness of all branches of knowledge and also the affinity of seekers of knowledge, whether as communities of readers or as disciples and fellows in fact. If courtiers could convince rulers that acting out the precepts of ancient wisdom 
was part of the technique and dignity of rulership. A changed and continually changing political order gave rise to a more general need for shared memories of a significant past that would help the ruled to feel that they were part of a historical process that had some sort of meaning and virtue for them. It seems to have been the rise of a book culture, made possible by the switch from expensive parchment and papyrus to paper, that gave the decisive push to an anthologising and encyclopaedic impulse which took off in the 9th century. It was now economically feasible to bring together materials that had previously been scattered in booklets or circulated by word of mouth. And this made it possible to compose large-scale narrative portrait galleries of pre-Islamic kings, Muslim caliphs and culture heroes and heroines, the latter being typically poets, singers and musicians of all periods. The juxtaposing of so many human types and tale types developed the sympathies and sharpened the analytical imagination of both writers and readers, showing how all situations, no matter how fateful and unique, are part of the same human condition and how human beings and human actions can be exemplary for all their imperfections. These were stories about what it is to be human, and more especially about what culture is and stands for, and what it is to be a bearer or producer of culture. As in book after book the stories were repeated or recast and reassembled in different configurations, a literary landscape was created that was independent of any individual book, and that readers could move around in at will. It provided a set of ideal scenarios to display a code of ethical and aesthetic values. This code was called Adab and was a powerful social force. Adab brought people together on social occasions, at court, in salon, at home over wine after dinner, to enjoy and make literature. It gave them the means to cultivate their sensibilities, to express them and have them recognised, to develop and function fully as human beings. The sociability of classical Arabic literature reached across rank and class, and also across generations and even centuries. Stories which had originally reached only a roomful of students or scholars could now, through books, circulate widely. Many anecdotes, the building blocks of Adab books, retained the record of the names of the person who was supposed to have witnessed an incident, of the person to whom they'd related it, and of the next person to be told the anecdote, and so on with the result that lines of transmission, real human chains, which had originally been known only to academic experts, now became the property of the whole reading public and continued to be quoted and added to for generations as new anthologies were compiled from the old. You often get the impression that later writers quoting earlier ones feel they're in the company of friends. Books of the sort that I've described memorialise, exalt, consecrate even, tiny vignettes and snatches of repartee, as well as the grand historical speech or gesture. This care for the traces men and women leave behind them carries over into the biographical dictionaries that are one of the unsung glories of late medieval and early modern Arabic literature. It's often been asked why there's so little fiction in pre-modern Arabic literature, so few made-up characters. It's odd that no one has asked why there's such a vast crowd of real or at any rate historical people in it. One reason is the sociability of Arabic literature. Anything well said in company would do the rounds and most likely end up in a book. Anecdotage brought immortality. 
lives could be put into writing as a series of anecdotes, and equally they could be, and were, lived as a series of anecdote opportunities. In classical Arabic, it's often difficult to distinguish between life and literature. So, classical Arabic literature was a landscape, or a succession of landscapes, which people could travel through again and again in imagination. Classical Arabic literature did the rounds of society and shaped manners and feelings. It crossed generations and connected the present with the past. It was full of flesh and blood people, but all that's history. Most of us are reluctant to think of ourselves as part of history. I am, it seems presumptuous and daunting. History is something that happens to other people. We're used to seeing ourselves as onlookers, not to being called on to change the world. But because I'm a student of classical Arabic, and because I studied it here at Oxford, I'm conscious of belonging to a human chain that stretches back into history, and once made history in a modest way. And it's that chain that I want to talk about in the second half of my lecture. The first Oxford Chair of Arabic was founded by the Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of the University, and former student, fellow and president of St John's, William Lord, in 1636, close on the heels of the Cambridge chair, founded by Sir Thomas Adams in 1632. Beginning in the early 1600s and ending in the early 1700s, the 17th century Arabic interest in England is an important chapter in our intellectual history, as you can tell from the title and contents page of one of the most fascinating books on this fascinating subject, shown on the PowerPoint here the Arabic interest of the natural philosophers in 17th century England, edited by G.A. Russell, 1994. And the key figure in 17th century English Arabic studies was Edward Pocock, the first holder of the Laudian chair, a man universally respected even by Puritans, he was a royalist, and widely beloved, as we learn from John Locke, who tutored Pocock's son, also Edward, at Christchurch in the early 1660s and wrote an appreciation of Pocock Senior after his death in 1691. When Pocock gave his inaugural on the 10th of August 1636, 377 years ago, he followed it with the first of a course of lectures on the proverbs ascribed to the Caliph Ali, of which we saw a modern edition on PowerPoint a few frames ago. Pocock gave his lecture from the 1629 Leiden edition by Jacob Golius, whereas my picture was of the 2013 Library of Arabic Literature edition and translation by Tahir al-Qutbuddin, dating from 384 years later. Here on PowerPoint is a portrait of Pocock in later life, after his return to Oxford following the Civil War, which interrupted his presence in Oxford and his publications. The work for which Pocock is most famous today is the 1671 Latin translation by his son, which he supervised, of a 12th century Arabic philosophical tale which, it's been claimed, influenced Locke's theory of mind, and which soon gave rise to English translations. The PowerPoint shows translations from 1674, 1685 and 1708. St John's wasn't originally the home of the Laudian chair but has now been continuously for over three quarters of a century, and with a tutorial fellowship in modern Arabic as well, 
has one of the most thriving Oxford undergraduate Arabic studies communities. The St John's College Student Oriental Studies Society has named itself the Pocock Society after Edward Pocock, and worldwide Pocock's name can never be forgotten by anyone doing manuscript-based research in Arabic. During his two spells in the Middle East, just before and after his appointment to the Laudian Chair, he collected some of the most important Arabic manuscripts now in the Bodleian. The 17th century English enthusiasm for Arabic blew itself out quite quickly, but appointments to the Laudian Chair continued, and so far there have been 15 Laudian professors, until now all men. I want to dwell on two giants among the Laudian professors, David Samuel Margoliath, number 10, who held the chair from 1889 to 1937, dying in 1940, and Alfred Frederick Landon Beeston, number 12, who held the chair from 1955 to 1978, but continued very present on the Oxford Arabic scene and at St John's until his death in 1995. On PowerPoint, here are Margoliath with a terrifying moustache and Freddie Beeston in typically sociable and genial mode. There was a particular bond between Margoliath and Beeston because Mar Margoliath was interested in ancient South Arabian epigraphy, which had been Beeston's schoolboy passion, and which remained his real speciality all his life, although outside the small circle of ancient South Arabianists, he's much better known for his important and outstandingly elegant contributions to Arabic linguistics and classical Arabic literature, including translations. Another thing Beeston and Margoliath had in common was enthusiasm for an author called Atanuchi, who lived in Iraq in the 10th century. It must have been Pocock who introduced Tanuchi to England. A manuscript of one of Tanuchi's two great anthologies, Deliverance from Adversity, Al-Faraj Ba'da is now in the Bodleian as M.S. Pocock 64. Beeston read parts of this work with his students and translated snatches of it with his customary vigour and gusto handing on the baton from Margoliath, who in the 1920s and 30s had produced a magnificent translation of Tanuchi's other great work, The Table Talk of a Mesopotamian Judge, Mishwar al-Muhadara. Both of Tanuchi's works are the acme of Arabic literary sociability. They consist of anecdotes garnered from family and friends, with chains of transmission explaining who told him what, when and where. Later authors found Tanuchi a mine of historical information and of irresistible stories. They quote him often and fondly, perpetuating the family air of the anecdotes by citing them through his son, with whom they were, so to speak, on first-name terms. Some of his best and most lurid stories were absorbed into the Thousand and One Nights. This was part of Beeston's legacy to his students, Tanuchi in particular, on whom I've worked ever since, and classical Arabic literature in general as a bond of sociability and something to chew over with your friends, very much in the intuitive tradition that I spoke of at the start of this paper, and often basking in Beeston's hospitality at St John's. This is how it came about that in 1996, a year after Freddie Beeston's death, a group of us who were out of work or otherwise down on our luck, decided to cheer ourselves up by running a summer-long seminar which St John's generously allowed us to hold in the judge's house in St Giles, attacking what we felt to be the central obstacle to bringing to bear on the discussion of Arabic literature any sort of hard-edged, intuitively informed but more than merely intuitive 
analysis, namely the notion of adab. It, adab, was said to be central to literature, for which there was no word in pre-modern Arabic, and was a term freely bandied about in the culture and by modern scholars. But what was it? A literary form, a genre, a mode of discourse? As the term presented itself to us, it was by turns frustratingly self-referential and maddeningly all-inclusive. Until we began to understand it, we felt we simply couldn't read, let alone get any grasp on classical Arabic literature. The descriptions of Adab that I gave earlier in this paper are among the working interpretations we reached separately and together, but Adab is a moving target, having different functions at different times and being different things for different writers and audiences. Getting these facts in our sights was hard work and we often felt completely stuck. One seminar wasn't enough to get to grips with the problem. Another three seminar series followed at New York University, hosted by one of us who had migrated there. Two collections of essays emerged quite a long time later and monographs are still continuing to emerge from the original question. From this long drawn out experiment, we made a number of discoveries which have continued to inform our work whether we're working alone or together. The hardest one conclusion, which comprises all the others, is that new modes of inquiry create a new kind of knowledge. At the beginning, we'd supposed that philology was both the tool and the object of inquiry. In that perspective, we'd felt there would probably be nothing startlingly new to be said about ADAB, and that we'd wind up our seminar by listing everything that had been said and could be said about it. But once we stopped assuming that we knew what we were looking for and realised that we'd locked ourselves into a fairly obvious tautology, we became opportunistic in our methods and began to find things we hadn't suspected existed. Our second discovery was that we as a group were a constituent of that new knowledge, even when we were working separately. The consciousness of the opportunities opened up by our individual backgrounds, sensibilities and trainings, and the certainty that we could count on each other's encouragement and criticism made and make each of us feel brave enough to venture further. And as a group, we've discovered we can tackle tasks that we'd shrink from individually. Our third discovery was that we were necessarily going to have to cross boundaries. If our authors are polymaths, as most of them are, to a greater or lesser extent, we have to try on our own or by bringing in help to understand what this means and we've got to be ready to follow our authors into fields that may be unfamiliar to us. Here's an extreme example. A poet who was also a physician, a mystic and, it seems, a magician. His poems in praise of Saladin as a counter-crusader and as the founder of a political dynasty on the back of the counter-crusade are going to call for teamwork to unravel, because apart from the quite novel historiographical dimension that they bring to the Crusades, and to medieval Middle Eastern politics, they use visual, geometric and numerical conventions that it's as essential to know about as the, to us today, much more familiar literary conventions that we can recognise in the figures which I'm showing you on PowerPoint, but which seem never before to have been put to quite such concrete use or broken up into such elaborate riddles. The transcribed and translated poem shown on PowerPoint is only one of these riddles and the most easily decipherable at that. It's a magical poem because it reads as an incantation, the same phrase 
calling down blessings having to be inserted at the beginning of each line to make it scan. The original poem is leaf-shaped. The incantatory phrase is taken from the spine of the leaf and when the reader inserts it so as to complete the metrically defective original, he creates a new leaf that's the mirror image of the original, creative magic. When a team has been put together to work on all these factors, we'll certainly gain an understanding not just of poetry, but of geometry, numbers, pattern, and since some of the patterns I'm showing you here are also used in architecture, of architectural ornament, organisation and illusion, and how to read them. Will we be rewriting history? The poet seems to have pestered Saladin by sending him poem after poem and scroll after scroll to encourage him during sieges and congratulate him after battles. Can Saladin have relaxed from smiting the Franks by deciphering rhyming riddles? Maybe. Our group's fourth discovery is that the more rigorous we become in our understanding of classical Arabic literature, the more we need to communicate. Reading classical Arabic literature used to be at the heart of Arabic studies, an undiscussed but undisputed acknowledgement that literature was at the heart of all human and historical understanding. And translation was then a natural extension of this kind of reading. But in recent years in our field, translation hasn't been considered to qualify as research, and classical Arabic literature has allowed itself to be pushed to the margins of our general area of study, and students get less of it. Also, as all disciplines within the area have become more specialised, they've lost touch with each other, and we as scholars have lost sight of the relations between them that actually existed within the culture, and this leads to epistemological distortion. So between researchers and as teachers, we must try to restore the balance. And in addition, we must try to communicate outside our own area of study and show that what we're trying to understand is what everyone else in the humanities is trying to understand, what it means to be human. The emblems of human experience that are so cherished in the culture that we study, whose recurrences we greet with a sense of fulfilment, which shape our mental landscape and ourselves, we must succeed in conveying to others why they satisfy and vivify and why we need the grounding they give us if we're to rise to challenge and change. The surrealist Man Ray famously said, there's no progress in art, there are simply different ways of doing it. That isn't a bad starting point when we're dealing with the verbal arts, which continue to pose the kind of moral problems and challenges to sensibility that most sophisticated people no longer feel when they confront the visual arts. We feel where we are at present in the Arabic humanities, that we stand in need of being shocked and dealing with the shock. Philology is not enough, nor is theory. We need something more radical. What's been the upshot of all our work as a group since 1996? Well, for a start, inspired both by the great Greco-Arabic translation movement and by such magnificent 20th century translations as those of Margoliath and Beeston, the founding group has realised a long-cherished wish to rescue translation as a serious communicative endeavour from the near extinction to which it's been driven in our field by the current evaluation procedures and funding opportunities. We've set up a publishing project, the Library of Arabic Literature, which aims to bring translations that are as scrupulous aesthetically as they are academically to an audience of both Arabic and non-Arabic readers. 
These translations are accompanied by a facing Arabic text. They may not trigger a general intellectual revolution, as the Great Translation Movement did, but you never know. We're gaining or regaining useful knowledge, learning that good translation makes for more critical text editing, as Margoliath remarked quite some time ago. And we're certainly tackling some problems of translation practice and theory that cut across languages and cultures. Some of our translators work alone, but they all work with a volume editor who's closely involved, and some of our titles are group translations. Twice a year, we, the eight members of the editorial board, who are also editor-translators, subject ourselves to the harrowing process of translation workshops and public presentations and to being laughed at by each other and by strangers, all of which we feel is good for getting a better grasp on problems of communication. The founding group has expanded and further intersecting groups keep forming to take on one-off or lasting projects. The tasks have to be distributed. We know that if we want to reach a wider public, we need two prongs, translations and editions, which we do through the Library of Arabic Literature, but also critical studies. Hence, Edinburgh studies in classical Arabic literature. There isn't time here to explain our varied Scottish connections and how they too are a revisiting of a literary and personal landscape as romantic and inspiring as it's enlightened. The brand new Edinburgh monograph series that Wen Chin Uyang of the School of Oriental and African Studies in London has associated me with, with her, has so far produced a two-part study of book culture and adab in the person of Jahith, mentioned earlier in this talk, not designed to make us feel comfortable. There's much challenge in how Jahiz conceives his art, but not necessarily sweetness and light. Jahiz, this uncomfortable author, who has never until now had a single truly critical study devoted to him in any language, is getting three monographs from two authors in our series. And this is a first in our field, where one book is usually considered enough to do an author or a subject for at least 20 years. And from Jahiz, we're moving on to the political role played by wisdom literature on the margins of empire as the caliphate unravels and to the Qur'an experienced as literature in the past and by modern writers. We're amazed to have got this far this soon with a list of authors all committed to making their erudition work to clarify ideas who are using this monograph series not only to state publicly their own intellectual commitments but to form a community of inquiry. As a group, a fluctuating and expanding group, we've confronted a literary landscape that at first seemed delightful and romantic and easily engaged with. Romance is not enough, we then discovered, and we've struggled for ways to meet the challenge. We thought we were working out our individual anxieties, doing ourselves good through facing this challenge. And when we got together as a group, we thought our concerns were vital enough, but primarily academic in every sense of the word but the world has changed beyond any imagining of ours since the days of our first meetings. Back then, history had more or less come to a stop in the Middle East. It was difficult to see where what we did fitted in, what it could contribute. It's hard to be fully convinced of the validity of studying the past, when there's no meaningful way for it to connect with the present, when there's no momentum to be got from repetition, when cyclicality only spells despair. Three years ago, history started again in the Arab world with the Arab Spring and gave us a new sense of purpose. 
we all know now that there's a long way to go and that optimism may have to be postponed, but not hope. The horizon has changed. The meaning of history has changed. We need this new history, wherever it goes, and we hope that one day it will need us.